Today we are going to be talking about unexpected devotion. This has been quite a series talking about God's unexpected grace, which we'll talk about today leads to unexpected devotion. And, um, and, and as we talk about devotion, we are also going to remember uh, Billy Graham. We lost him this last weekend, a great uh, man of faith, a great uh, evangelist who preached to an estimated 215 million people worldwide over the course of his life. That's a good percentage of the global population preaching Jesus Christ to. He was also known for building uh, bridges between people who normally would be burning them down. Uh, one of the things that he got criticized for quite often was that he hung out with everybody. Um, he hung out with both Democrats and Republicans. Can you imagine? Like both? Conservatives, liberals, Catholics, Protestants, he showed the love of Christ to everyone. And when he preached, he made sure to focus on Jesus Christ, not focus on what divides, but focus on what brings us together, which is the love of Jesus Christ. So a lot of Billy Graham's ministry was the scandal of grace because he was a gracious person and he showed equal grace to everybody. And that got some of the people who like living in their camps pretty riled up. But all that points back to the scandal of grace that Jesus Christ first delivered to the earth. And the scandal of grace really boils down to, to this reality here, that God is interested more in us than our obedience. God is more interested in us personally than our obedience. Now, the religious mindset says God is absolutely interested in us doing the right things to please him. Jesus turns that around and says, no, God's a heavenly father. He's more interested in you than your obedience. And he proved that by the stories he told. He told the story of the, of the prodigal son where the heart of the father was always towards his son and valued his son regardless of his actions. He told the story of the good Samaritan which sort of turned what was good and who was our neighbor completely upside down. And then he reached out to people who were considered sinners and lost and cursed and outcast. His whole life was about presenting God as a heavenly father who loves us and values us more then he values our obedience or religious devotion. In fact, one of the stories in the Gospels I love the most, this is out of Mark chapter two, and just to kind of set the scene here, it's a Saturday. Now, you know what a Saturday is in Hebrew culture, right? It is the Sabbath, it is the day of rest. And there are rules about the Sabbath. You cannot work on the Sabbath. Yeah, you can go around and walk a little bit, but you can only walk a certain number of steps before you have to sit. And so you have to carry a bench around to walk a certain number of steps so you can rest on that bench. Now, I don't know why carrying a bench isn't work, but the next three steps is. I have no idea. That's kind of the silliness of religion, right? You're walking around putting benches down. Now, Jesus was about to intentionally break a religious law. He was about to intentionally break a religious law, and he did it to prove a point. Now, he wasn't breaking God's law, but religious law is far different than God's law. So he's walking around a field, and here's kind of how it goes. On one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. I brought some heads of grain. I don't know what these are, actually, but look like heads of grain to me. They're actually flowers, and I'm apparently allergic to these things. I'm swelling up, throat is closing. I'm not going to make it through the day. On a Sabbath, Jesus pulls by some grain, and with his disciples, picks it. That was work. Now, the Pharisees who were following him for a half a mile, that wasn't work, but pulling that grain was. That's the silliness of religious law. And Jesus makes this stunning statement as he's arguing with the religious leaders about whether or not Jesus broke the law. Here's what Jesus says in verse 27. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This was stunning. Listen again. The Sabbath, the day of rest, 
was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus says something incredibly powerful here. He says that God gives the law for our benefit. Now, this is totally different than the way we normally think. In religious circles, we normally think that we have to obey God's law for his benefit. He's, he's grumpy, he's mad, he's disappointed, right? And, and, and his day is going terrible. But if we're obeying God, and if we please God, and keep in mind, that, that phrase is even kind of weird. If we please God, we will then obey him for his benefit. He'll turn the frown upside down. But Jesus says the law was made for our benefit. That means like a good father, God is focused on our well-being. Jesus says, I gave you the law as a gift. God gave the law as a gift. God gave us the day of rest as a gift. So we're not you know, working seven days a week, 14 hours a day. God gave that as a gift for humanity to say, hey, listen, live at rest, live at peace, take some time, regenerate, renew yourself, right? God gives the law to us as a gift to make our lives better. The law is not some way to make God's life better, somehow to please him so that he's not upset all the time. God's fine. He's fine with or without us. God is fine. He's fine whether we obey or disobey. God is redefining our perspective of who he is through the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, this is the scandal of grace through Jesus. And that scandal of grace was, was so just tore the religious leadership apart that he was accused of preaching from Satan. He was accused of blasphemy. They had plotted to kill Jesus and they manipulated the Roman authorities to put him to death. That's what the scandal of grace cost Jesus. Then there's the Apostle Paul. The resurrected Lord visited the Apostle Paul and says, I need you to advance my cause, not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Empowered Paul by gifting and by the Spirit to go preach this message of grace to the Gentiles. And here's what the scandal of grace cost Paul. Paul says, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Thank you for that minus one. It was thought that 40 lashes would kill you, so they just withheld one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my fellow Jews, and danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in the country, at sea, danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Sounds like my Wednesday last week. Actually, actually, compared to that, obviously, we've got a lot of freedoms here and just a lot of you know, fun preaching the gospel of grace, but it cost the, the apostle Paul everything, including later in his ministry, his, his own life. Grace is scandalous. Grace is scandalous. Now, why is there such a scandal of grace? Even today, there's a scandal of grace. The more grace is preached, the more some people get concerned. And about twice a year here at Rancho, we focus on God's grace through very specific, highly focused series to make sure that we are always grounded in God's grace. And it always creates some concern. And some people would say, hey, God can't love us completely unconditionally, right? I mean, there's got to be some limits out there. I mean, come on, there's those people. You know what those people do out there? I mean, of course, God can forgive my little baby sins, but those mega sins, I'm not sure God's grace can go that far. Why are the religious always so afraid of grace? Why are the religious always so afraid of grace? There's two reasons. One is a horrible reason and one is understandable. Here, the horrible reason why religious people are um, so concerned with grace is because there are some, I don't think many, at least I hope, there are some people who actually want people to suffer in condemnation. 
They want people they hate to suffer in condemnation. I have met these people. They almost salivate at the thought that people they hate will be condemned eternally. It's disturbing. Now, I'm just gonna assume there's none of those folks in this room. The second reason why people sometimes get concerned about grace is, is because there are, there are genuine questions that come as a result of grace. There are natural questions. Whenever grace is preached, there are several questions that automatically pop up, and these are legitimate questions whenever grace is preached. Here's one of them. Is grace universalist? Now, universalism is that everyone is saved. Everyone is saved. Uh, and and it, it really is a, um, it's a wonderful thought to think that God's grace is so complete and that it has nothing to do with us that everyone is saved. In fact, to kind of put a fine point on it, if we are saved by grace based on nothing we have done, why couldn't everyone be saved? It's a very natural question. You preach grace that we're saved by nothing we have done. It's a very natural question. Well, why can't God just save everyone? Now, I want to be very clear about this. I wish this was true. Just as a human being, I wish it was true. 1 John 2, 2 says, Jesus died for the sins of the world, and I would just absolutely love it if that meant that everyone is saved. And there's a lot of different definitions of what that might mean, but I would love that. The problem is there are very clear teachings in the scripture that indicate that salvation only comes through belief. Here's one of the most popular, Ephesians 2, 8. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourself, it is a gift of God so that no one should boast. We are saved by grace, but it's received through faith. Faith doesn't save us. Grace saves us, but it's received through faith. So um, let's say after church, uh, I see you out there kind of huddled over on the sidewalk and you are starving near to death. And I just happen to be walking out of church with my sack lunch, right? Trying to save a buck. Walk out with my sack lunch and there you are near starving to death. And I said, hey, you can, you can take my lunch. Now you can, you can decide, I'm giving this to you freely. This is a gift of grace and I'm just, it's right there. All you have to do is take it, and it's yours. Or you can refuse it and stay in your starvation. Grace, according to God's word, is received through faith. That means people who receive it are saved. People who do not receive it are not. 1 John 1.12 puts it this way. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We've got to receive it. We've got to believe it by faith. It's not based on works. Our faith doesn't save us. Only God's grace saves us, but we are receiving it by faith. There's a little rumor going around Rancho that we might be headed in a universalist direction. And it's just simply not the case. If anyone participates in that kind of chatter without talking about us, talking to us about that, just, it's just gossip, right? And we just ask you that you talk to us, have the questions answered, and that there would be no gossip around church about this. All right, cool, thumbs up? All right, thumbs up. Second question that naturally comes as a result of the preaching of grace is this. Is grace a license to sin? Is grace a license to sin? And this is an understandable question, right? If we are saved by grace based on nothing we have done, why shouldn't we just sin like Vikings on a New Year's raiding party? I'm watching the show Vikings on Amazon Prime, and so I'm a you know, little into that Viking raiding party. But why not, right? If, if we're saved by grace, let's just do every evil, filthy, gross thing we could possibly involve ourselves in, right? Well, we've got to ask ourselves a couple of questions based on this. Grace 
is not a license to sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul has to address this question all the time. Any preaching of grace will always result in the question, well, that, does that just mean we can do anything we want to? Well, here's how Paul answers that question. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? He just preached this beautiful message of grace, so everybody's asking, so then can we do whatever we want to? And the Apostle Paul says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin, so how can we live in it any longer? Let's go back to my sack lunch here. We've received the goodness and grace from God freely. We've received that. And we are, are, are now free from guilt and shame and, and the, the things in our life that had us separated from God and, and, and these things that destroyed, I mean, through pride, through hurting people, through anger, through whatever it is, right? God forgave us and then is walking with us on a direction to live in a new life. Why would we go back to starving again? Why would we go back to the old way of life full of guilt, full of shame, full of destruction by our pride and by our behavior. Why would we go backwards, right? That's a way of death. We are now living a whole new life. Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't say if you go and pursue a lifestyle of sin and destruction and hurt, you know, that you're going to lose your, your saving grace. No. He just says, why would you want to go back to that old lifestyle? So it is not a license to sin. In fact, if anything, once we receive God's grace, there is such life there, there is such acceptance there and warmth there that we wouldn't even think about going backwards. Grace is not a license to sin. A third question that comes up about grace, is grace lazy? Is grace lazy? I mean, if we're not motivated by fear and guilt and threats, wouldn't we just lounge around and do absolutely nothing? Right? Wouldn't we just take advantage of God's grace? You know, I'm, I'm saved anyway, I'm forgiven anyway. I'm not gonna lift a finger, right? I'm not gonna do a single thing for God or to advance the cause of Christ or, or together with my church, I'm gonna do nothing, right? Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Again, in Romans, after preaching this is full-throated message of grace, here's the result of grace. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never lack zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. That sound lazy to you? That sounds like a life that is full of energy, full of zeal, and full of devotion. Why? Because we're motivated by grace. We're motivated by grace. The overarching question of today is, is grace uncommitted? All this preaching of grace, does that mean uncommitted sinful, lazy, I mean, who knows what? Whatever the fears are about preaching too much grace. Is grace uncommitted? And the answer is no. And I'll tell you why. A couple of reasons why grace is not uncommitted. First of all, love actually fuels devotion. God's grace, God's love actually fuels devotion. I'm gonna give you two scenarios. Let's just say I want a devoted wife. Part of being a husband is I want a devoted wife. So here's how I'm gonna do it. In fact, she just got back from picking up my daughter at the airport, so I'm gonna talk to her between services. Here's what I want from a devoted wife. I want her to spend an hour focused on me every single day. She must honor me throughout the day. She must devote every Saturday to only me, and she must obey everything I command of her. How's that gonna go over? It's gonna be a short conversation. She's either gonna laugh at me or she's gonna turn her back. I mean, it's just, no, does that fuel devotion? Does threats and manipulation and fear and demands and commands, does that fuel true devotion? Now, it can fuel compliance. I mean, if, if, if we are threatened enough in religious circles, I'm telling you, we will comply. 
Because we're under threat. God may curse our life. He may not answer our prayers. We might not even be saved if we're not compliant. So religion equals compliance, but love equals true devotion. Love equals true devotion. Do rules and systems of reward and punishment create true devotion? What's the answer? No. Here's another scenario. Let's assume I want a devoted wife. So every day, I want to tell her I love her. Every day, I want to show her through word and deed that she's always on my mind. I want to make every effort to know that she's the most important person in my life. I want to try to be a really good dad to our kids. And and I want to, you know, get away for special date nights and plan special trips. That's where true devotion is going to rise, right? So which is more effective in nurturing true devotion? Which is more effective? Rules and punishment or love and affection? For people who think too much grace equals a lack of commitment, just ask yourself the question, does that bear out in everyday life? Threats and punishment never equals true devotion. Never. So if we want to live a life of true devotion to God, then let's kind of do away with the threats. Let's do away with the fear. Let's do away with all these religious paradigms. And let's really pour into grace more and pour into love more because that's what generates true devotion. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Fear doesn't make anyone perfect. Love makes us more perfect. Love makes us more perfect. And so for anyone who thinks we might be preaching too much grace around here, I'm telling you, you can't preach enough grace because grace is what motivates true devotion. Absolutely true devotion. We've had a, uh, an unfortunate series of memorial services here, and, and there's heartbreak there, but there is some pleasure in laying to rest somebody who has lived a good long life, and, and, um, and they've lived a life of devotion. We laid a man to rest yesterday, not, you know, he's a little, little on the younger side, which is unfortunate, but a man who really loved his wife and a man who really loved his son. And for them to share at the memorial service just how much he meant to them and how he showed that by his actions, by his selflessness. He showed that to his wife by devoting himself to her and going off to trips with her and just having a fun time together as a couple, cherishing her. And he was always there for his son, never missed a, a game, uh, oftentimes at his practices, just cheering on his son and, and pouring himself into his son. That's where true devotion is. So for, at, for that memorial service, to, to call this gentleman a devoted husband and devoted father, that, that was done because of love, not fear, not threats. So love and grace actually fuels devotion. So if love fuels devotion, we have to ask ourselves the question, well, what is devotion? And God makes it very clear that devotion is, in fact, love. Love fuels devotion, but devotion is love. If you were to ask a kind of a normal religious person, what does God want? What does religious devotion mean? I guarantee you're going to get a whole lot of lists of things that we need to do for God. God wants us to read the Bible, to pray, to go to church, to to give, uh, to serve, to share our faith. There's a list of things that we have to do. Most religious people would say true devotion is doing a lot of things for God. However, that is not the case. Biblically, that is not the case. In fact, at the Scandal of Grace event we had two Sundays ago, uh, somebody asked a very good question about us here at Rancho. He says, in a grace-based church, how do we encourage people to obey God? Essentially, reading through the you know, the lines here, if you don't have fear and threats and hardcore commitment and, and, and devotion really by what I would consider manipulation and, and this reward system, 
what is going to encourage people to truly obey God? Well, keep in mind, love fuels devotion, but devotion is love. Devotion to God is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not. And Paul says so in Romans chapter 13. Now get this. Paul says, you know the commandments. Now he was a, he was a Hebrew lawyer and scholar. He knew all the biblical commandments. And he starts listing them, then he runs out of breath. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and blah, 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 whatever else, other commandments. Just kind of whatever else, you know the commandments. Now get this. They're all summed up in one commandment. To love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. All the commandments in the Bible, all of them are summed up in one word, love. So when we talk about devotion to God, it's not a list of things to do or a list of things not to do. If we talk about true and full devotion to God, it's a commitment to love. In fact, according to Romans chapter 13, it's a commitment to do no harm and love everyone everywhere. So true devotion is not being a good, compliant, religious person doing all the things that the church expects you to do. True devotion fueled by love is in fact to love others. Do no harm. Wherever you are doing harm to anyone, with your temper, with your words, with your gossip, with your attitude problems, I mean, look at you. Wherever we are doing any harm, true devotion to Christ is to pull that back. Pull that back. And then love everyone everywhere. Wherever you are judgmental, pull that back. Wherever you aren't kind, right, push forward kindness. Wherever you have a tendency to focus on yourself and, and be selfish and want your way and whine if you don't, pull that back and, and live for the benefit of others. This is true devotion. Do no harm and love everyone everywhere. There's, you know, a lot of times where people might say, okay, Rancho is this grace-based church and... And, and that means people must not be very devoted. And, and my response to that often is, you're not going to get at Rancho a whole long list of do's and don'ts, as though God is somehow, you know, made happy by these big, long religious lists of do's and don'ts. But what you are going to get every single week is you're going to get this pouring out of love from God and this encouragement then to love other people. Romans 13 said, love covers all the commandments. I say every once in a while, if I love my wife, I'm not going to cheat on her. I do not have to wake up every day. How am I going to avoid cheating on my wife today? Command, oh, there's a command there, so I won't do it. If I love my wife, I'm not going to cheat. If I love you, I'm not going to steal your stuff, right? Love covers all the commandments. Finally, growing in love is a call. Growing in the devotion of love is a real thing that takes some intentionality. It's not just automatic that we become more loving. Growing in the, in the devotion of love takes serious effort. Growing in the devotion of love takes serious effort. God wants us to be more devoted. He wants us to be more loving, and that takes effort. Now, how do you reconcile a grace-based church with the effort to love more completely? Well, it's really not a conflict here. In fact, I'm going to steal something from one of our Bible teachers. His name is Dennis Johnson, and uh, he teaches in our mature adult program quite often, and he and I have been having quite a good dialogue about this, and I said, I'm going to rip off some of your stuff. He didn't say yes, and so that means he didn't say no, so, so here it is. It's helpful to understand the difference between earn and effort, and I think this is a good point. He says, while earning is the opposite of grace, effort goes quite nicely with grace. If we think by our actions we can earn anything from God, now we're, we're not in the grace zone anymore. 
But if we say, God, you have given me so much grace, you've given me love, you've forgiven me of everything I've, I've ever done and everything I will do, you've forgiven me in love through the cross of Jesus Christ, I have received that love freely, and God, now in grace, I wanna put in the effort to love like Jesus. And that's really the goal, is to love like Jesus. That's what true devotion is, to love like Jesus, and that takes some effort. Listen, love is not automatic. In fact, human nature is selfishness, right? To love requires effort, but it's grace-based effort. And it's effort that doesn't earn our standing with God, but it's effort that says, God, I wanna walk with you on the journey to become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. And so so whatever we do in our life, we do towards the goal of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And that takes some work. It takes some work. Um, My boys love sports, and they've loved sports since the time they were very young. But, um, you know, you get the kids on a baseball field, and the early years don't go so well. That's not going to end well for that kid. You've all seen the, the baseball stories, right? The, the early years just don't go so, so well. <laughs> I love the internet. It is just made for this kind of stuff. All right. So, so the early years of baseball don't go well. There's, a, there's this website called 35 Funniest Pictures of Kids Playing Baseball. So Enjoy. You know, you're picking clovers and you're just, you love it, right? You're out there, you send your boys out there, go freely play baseball, but they have no idea what they're doing. But then they walk a journey of getting better at it and they practice and they practice and they work and they work, but they love it, right? Everything they do growing up in sports towards getting better is just part of the pleasure of playing sports. And the same thing is true of our walk with God. God says, I freely love you. I have freely forgiven you. You've received that. You are my child. You are my perfect son, my perfect daughter. Now go play. This world is for you. Go play in this world freely. And sometimes we make a mess of ourselves. Sometimes we hurt ourselves and sometimes we hurt others. But what is God saying? God's saying, listen, I've got this vision of you becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. I've got this vision of you loving people with the love of Jesus Christ. Now now get to work and have fun while you're doing it. Getting better at loving. God calls us to get better at loving. Growing in the devotion of love takes effort, but in a culture of grace, the effort is a pleasure. It really is fun to learn to love more like Jesus Christ. It's not fun to manage a bunch of religious you know, do's and don'ts. That's not fun. We don't have to worry about that, right? We have to worry about the single command that Jesus left us, what true devotion is. This unexpected devotion is the commitment to love other people with the love of Jesus Christ, and that takes a little bit of effort. Just to kind of wrap up here real quick, we've got a few tools at our disposal so that we can love more like Jesus. There's this Bible. Now, I had to actually borrow this, and I borrowed it without permission. It's Steve Solomon's Bible, but he left it in my office, so finders, keepers. I don't own a paper Bible in the English language. But um, this first two pages of the Bible is God's vision for this world as it should be. Then it goes south on page three. And the entire Old Testament is about just how broken this world is and the futility of trying to earn God's favor by religious law. That's the entire Old Testament trying to earn God's favor by religious law. And at the end of the Old Testament, God's people are in captivity. 10 of the 12 tribes are eradicated from the face of the earth and God is silent for 400 years at the end of the Old Testament. Doesn't go well. Then there are the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus comes on the scene to introduce a whole new plan, a whole new paradigm. 
that it's not about the religious laws that the Old Testament proved to be a failure. The religious laws cannot bring anybody to God. Religious laws cannot make anybody righteous. That's a failure. Just read the Old Testament. Jesus says there's a whole new plan. It's a new covenant. It's a covenant that pours grace and forgiveness from heaven onto us. And then the rest of the New Testament is about that love and that grace through Jesus Christ going to the ends of the earth, and it ends with this cool little book of Revelation, which isn't bad news, it's good news, that one day the kingdom of the earth becomes the kingdom of heaven. That's your Bible. As we read that story, we are brought into that story, and we say, God, would you allow me to receive the love of Christ and share the love of Christ and to love like him? The Bible is a great tool. Prayer is a great tool. It's not just about a religious, you know, um, uh, religious magic. Prayer, you know, in a certain way will automatically mean this or that. We name it and claim it. We demand things from God. We say in Jesus' name and we pray in fervent faith and stuff. No, it's not a magic formula to get God to do stuff for us. Prayer is this incredible gift that connects us relationally with God. At any moment, at any day, whether you are doing well or whether you're in the middle of a failure, you can come to God freely by his grace, boldly approaching the throne of grace, as Hebrew says, and we can pray to him. And we can pray prayers that ground us, right? We can thank him uh, for who he is. We can thank him for all he's given us. Uh, we can submit ourselves to him. We can admit when we've done some things that are wrong and say, God, would you give me the strength to love more and more like Jesus Christ? Prayer is a great a great tool that we have. It's a gift that we had to connect with God and to grow in faith. Now, uh, I am paid to study the Bible, so I cheat. But I also have a personal devotion in the morning. I'm a little fresher in the morning. If I try to read at night, I'm out. So that uh, just doesn't work. So in the morning, it's good for me to read the Bible. I'd encourage you to find a, a time to read the Bible. It doesn't have to be every day, but just find a rhythm that works for you. Get you kind of grounded. Find a time to spend some time in prayer, Right? Spend some time in prayer, just connecting with God. There's no formula. There's no number of minutes that's more holy than others, right? Just find your time to enjoy God's gift of the Bible and to enjoy God's gift of prayer. And then finally, we have each other. We have each other. We've got this incredible gift of the church. And here at the church, we have an amazing opportunity to grow together. In fact, we've got a lot of things that we can do only together that we can't do solo. Worshiping together is huge. When we are gathering voices and hearts together, it grounds us in praise of God. And that, that is the foundation of our life with God as supreme and God as the center. We live all of our lives. We learn together corporately in God's word. We rally around God's word and God's mission. We grow together, and this happens in relationship. We become friends, right? Growing together as friends. We give together. We are fueling things by these offerings. This is not just a religious thing we do with our offerings. We are fueling the advancement of the cause of Christ here locally and globally. It's a pleasure to give together. We also share life together. If one of us is succeeding, we get to celebrate that. If somebody is failing, we get to come alongside and give grace. If somebody is hurting, we get to come alongside and bring comfort. We get to serve together, doing amazing things. I love Dave's video. I don't see those videos until uh, I get here on a Sunday. But as soon as he said, I've, I mean, here's this construction worker, three-year-olds for 30 years. I just started cracking up, and then I got a little weepy. I'm like, how cool is that? We get to serve together in powerful ways, and then we get to have fun together. The culture of the kingdom of heaven truly is a culture of celebration. We see that as Jesus says, when my grace goes out and when somebody receives my grace and comes to the knowledge of their salvation through Jesus Christ, heaven erupts in celebration. We have an incredible gift of the Bible, incredible gift of prayer, an incredible gift of each other to spur us on towards unexpected devotion 
fueled by grace, pointed at this goal to love other people with the love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. Thank you that your grace is the very foundation under our feet. It grounds us in our new identity, that we are loved by you, that you're a heavenly father, that you are for our well-being, that you gave us uh, your word as an act of grace. You gave us the privilege of prayer and the privilege of being together in in the camaraderie of a church family, all by your grace towards the goal of, of making us more like Christ over our lifetime. You have called us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and we cannot be like Jesus through any religious manipulation, guilt, fear, threats, or managing religious rules. The only way we can be more and more like Jesus Christ is to be grounded in your grace, surrounded in love, and to put in the effort together to love like Jesus Christ. So God, where we are are selfish and unkind, I pray that we would put off those old things and we would take on the new things of service, of selflessness, of kindness, of gentleness, of kind words, of loving other people the way you love us. God, make us more like Jesus Christ, fueled by your grace. In his name we pray, amen.